0: Well, last week we started a new series of messages that we're calling The Providence of God, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And if you were here with us last week, then you know we started by talking a little bit about what the providence of God is. And we said the providence of God is this idea that God did not simply create the heavens and the earth and everyone and everything in them, and then sort of wind them all up like a clock and turn them loose to do whatever it is that they may, like some kind of a grand experiment to see, if you will, what kind of a picture, and that's a key concept, that they would kind of all come together and in the end form. But instead, the providence of God is this idea that God started with a picture in mind. And it's his picture. In other words, he decided on the front end exactly what it is that he wanted everyone in the heavens and in the earth to see on the back end in the final analysis. And then with that picture in mind, he created He created the heavens and the earth. He created everyone and everything in them, like so many little pieces of this giant jigsaw puzzle of this picture, if you will, that God wants in the end for us all to see. And then, having created all things, He stepped into it, and He stepped sovereignly into this creation. And He began then to proactively... And sovereignly order and ordain and govern and direct and decree, and you know, I mean, all of these different things, if you will, absolutely everyone, including every one of us, and absolutely everything, including everything that happens in every one of our lives, toward the creation of this picture that he's making. And every one of our lives is like one little precious piece of the puzzle. That's the providence of God in a nutshell. And we all acknowledged, I think anyway, last week that, hey, we're all cool with the providence of God. In fact, we don't even think about the providence of God as long as everything's going well for us in life. But as soon as the wheels come off the bus, man, all of a sudden we start thinking about God's providence, about God's governance, about God's direction, about God's control of our lives and about what's happening inside the edges of our little puzzle piece. And we start making judgments about God. Maybe he's not in control. Maybe he's not powerful. Maybe he's not, you know, loving. Maybe he doesn't really care. Maybe, 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 and about his providence and maybe even about his picture without ever having first seen his picture. And if you just kind of think it through... That's really not fair, is it? And one of the things we said last week is that I could give you a little tiny picture, one little puzzle piece, if you will, of a giant jigsaw puzzle, and you could sit here for the rest of your life. In fact, you could sit here for all of eternity trying to figure out what in the world you're looking at. And you'd come up with all kinds of brilliant hypotheses. I'm quite sure about why this color is here and what this little digit here and why the puzzle piece curves in here. And it must be that this is what this is and that this is what this is and that this is what this is, you know, and clearly. And I love it when people use the word clearly, particularly after it follows something like in 10 billion years ago. Clearly, it's like, what, do you have this on videotape? Were you there? Do you, you know, did you see this or is this a hypothesis? Well, based on what I can see, oh, well, how much is that? Well, in our lives, it's, it's about this big. It's about the size of one little piece of a giant puzzle. We can't really understand completely, fully, properly everything that happens to us in this life, guys, until we see how God takes this little puzzle piece, which is our life, and he plugs it into his big picture. And then that's going to be like a major aha moment. In fact, it's going to be a series of aha moments where we go, oh, that's what that was all about, and that's why that color is there, and that's why it curves in here, and that's what, and I thought it was about this. It had nothing to do with that, or I couldn't figure it out, and now I see it. My imagination was so small that I couldn't imagine that it could possibly be good, but you know what? It is good. In fact, it's beautifully good. We're cool with the providence of God until things start going poorly, and then we start looking at what we can see inside the edges of our little puzzle piece, and we're going, I don't know about this, without having seen how it plugs in and fits. It makes sense within the context of the whole. And here's the deal, and we talked about this too. God does not come to us in those disillusioned, disconcerting you know, moments when we're going, what's going on here because the wheels are off the bus and pull us aside to explain it. He doesn't come and say, look, you know, I know this is a little confusing for you. I know you're wondering about this color over here and this little line here and how this design fits. And so just to kind of cool you down a little bit, let me show you how this fits in my big, beautiful puzzle so you can relax. Okay, you can see it and go, wow, never thought of that one. Well, no, but you didn't. But he doesn't do that. But instead, because it adds to the beauty of his big picture and to the beauty of each one of our little lives, that we might trust Him even when trusting Him doesn't look inside the edges of our lives like it makes a lot of sense. Instead, what He does is He comes to us and says, look, here is who I am. Here is what I'm like. Here is the profundity of the love that I have with you. Take a good look at the cross and understand that I have withheld no good thing from you. In fact, it's far greater than even you can imagine. And you're gonna have to trust me on this one. You're gonna have to trust that I'm at work outside the edges of the little puzzle piece of your life, which is as far as your vision goes, in ways that, believe it or not, make sense of it all. In ways that, in the end, when it finds its place in my big puzzle, will prove my promise to be true, which is what? My promise is that it's good. My promise is that it's beautiful. And Joseph, this amazing young man, does exactly that. He trusts and he hangs on to God, guys, when absolutely everything in his life is upside down, is confusing to say the very least, and is screaming for him to abandon the Lord and just go do his own thing. But instead he hangs on to God. Anyway, a little review, last week we saw that Joseph in the providence of God and through no fault of his own, and both of those phrases are important, in the providence of God, God ordained this, and through no fault of his own, he didn't bring it on himself, is born into a horribly dysfunctional and unbelievably wicked family. If you missed last week, it's online. Go listen to it. You'll be stunned at the dysfunction of this family. And within the context of this dysfunctional, highly wicked family, he finds himself as the favorite son of his father, Jacob, okay? Who bestows upon him, as a sign of his favoritism, this beautifully multicolored, uniquely created, no other one like it in the whole world, made just for you, Joseph, coat. Which signifies to all of his brothers every one of which but one was older than him, that he's a favorite, that he, in contravention to all of the conventions of his day, is the primary heir, and oh, by the way, it symbolizes his authority over all of his brothers, most of them older. So they loved him. They hated him so much that Moses, who is writing this book of Genesis, who also wrote the story of Cain and Abel much earlier in the same book, Goes back to that story and pulls language out of the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, the first murderer who murders his brother, then refuses to repent of it, is then marked, literally, somehow, by God and is sent off to wander as an accursed man in the land of wandering. Okay, he pulls language out of that to explain to you how wicked his brothers, including this man, Judah, keep your eye on him, were. Stunning. So his brothers hate him. And then it gets a little worse because he turns them in for being bad guys to dad. Now he's a tattletale They hate him more. And then it gets worse because God comes to him and he gives him not one but two prophetic visions. These dreams which indicate, hey, Joseph, hey, brothers, hey, everybody who's listening, this is what's coming down the road, okay? I, God, have spoken and, oh, parenthetically, I ordain and govern over everything. So it's written in stone. And in the dreams... Joseph is standing, and his brothers, who already hate him, are bowing at his feet. So you know they're loving him even more now. They can't stand him. And what happens next is Jacob sends his favorite son, Joseph, who he had withheld, off to this foreign land to go find his brothers, who apparently are lost or something, and the father is wondering about them. And so he goes off to this foreign land to go find his brothers, and he's not met with open arms. He is met with their seizing him, stripping him of his favorite coat, his very special multicolored unique coat, unique to him in all the world, and which speaks of his authority, and they throw him into this unused pit while they sit around passing the potato chips and the ketchup and whatever, having lunch while he's crying out for his life, commenting on how good the food is, so just so he can hear it, and deciding his fate. At which point, here comes a caravan of Ishmaelites. They're headed down to Egypt. They're spice traders. Egypt is the place of the dead. It's where the mummies are. It's burial spices that they carry, you see. And Judah, whose name in the Greek language is Judas, and I make that point again because he plays the role of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of the Son of God himself in this story. Hang on to that. Don't miss that. What is Christ or who is Christ other than the uniquely favored, uniquely gifted, everybody can look at Him and know that He's special, Son of the Father sent to a foreign land to seek and to save His lost brothers only not to be met with, you know, open arms, but to be met with their envy, to be met with their anger, to be met with their hostility, to be taken literally and stripped of his coat, which, as an aside, was unique, and then thrown into an unused tomb, a cave, a pit, having been first betrayed by Judas Iscariot for silver. Well, here come the spice traders, and Judas sees them, And he seizes this as an opportunity, you see. And so he takes leadership in the family. Keep your eye on this guy, Judah. And he says to the brothers, hey, look, here's the deal. Why don't we do this? Instead of killing Joseph or just leaving him in the pit to starve and, you know, die there on his own, why don't we yank him up out of the pit? Why don't we sell him as a slave to these guys who are heading down to Egypt, the land of the dead? He's going to die down there anyway as a slave, and we can profit from it, and they trade him for silver. It's shocking how these stories of Christ, of Judas, and of Judah come together. And his name in Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, is Judas. Judas Iscariot was not called Judas by Jesus. His name was Judah. So that's what they do with Joseph. Joseph. And Joseph, where we left off last week, heads on down to Egypt. You'll recall he's sold as a slave into the household of a very powerful and wealthy Egyptian official, a man whose name was Potiphar, while his brothers head home. And on the way home, they take his unique, only one-of-a-kind, made-just-for-Joseph tunic, and they kill a goat, and they dip it in the goat's blood. And then when they get home, they present, Judah and his brothers present this tunic to his father, and listen to the language, it's very important you'll hear it again, they say, please examine and see, please examine and see if this is your son's tunic or not. And of course it is, it's unmistakable. And Jacob assumes that Joseph, his favorite son, has been murdered, killed by wild beasts, and he has, just it happened also to be Jacob's other son's. And nothing inside the little puzzle piece of Joseph's life is making any sense. How in the world could it? And nothing inside this, the life of, of Jacob is making any sense. And God doesn't show up in the middle of it and say, all right, boys, look, I know, I know that you're seriously questioning things here, so let me explain it to you. No. Because it adds to the beauty of his picture and because it adds to the beauty of their lives individually, the life of Joseph is a beautiful life and it becomes more beautiful every time we learn from it. Because it adds to the beauty, not subtracts. And it inures to the glory of God. God just says, Look, guys, it's who I am, it's what I'm like. Here's my nature, here's my character. Here is the manifestation of my love for you, which is beyond questioning. I'm working outside the edges of your little life in ways you can't see. You're just going to have to trust me on this one. When your life finds its place in my puzzle, it's going to be a major aha moment for you. That's it. And that's exactly what we'll see Joseph do in chapter 39 this morning, but before we get to chapter 39, we've got to deal with chapter 38, which isn't about Joseph. It's about this other guy that I keep telling you to keep your eye on. It's all about Judah. It covers like 20 years in this guy's life, whole chapter dedicated to him. Judah, who's already been compared to Cain. Judah, who's already been compared, well, to Judas Iscariot. Judah, who together with his brothers, and maybe as the spokesperson, we don't know, took the tunic of his brother, dipped it in blood, presented it to his father, and said, "'Please examine and see if this unique item is your son's.'" Chapter 38 deals with Judah, and you're meant to compare it with chapter 39, which deals with Joseph. Look at what both of these guys do, and notice the difference. Genesis 38, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came about at that time that Judah departed. No, actually what it says is that it came about at that time that Judah went down. There's a difference, and it's an important difference. Moses is an artist. He's writing art. His literature is his art. And what is happening geographically in the life of this man Judah mirrors what's happening spiritually in his life. In other words, spiritually speaking, he's getting worse. You're like, no, that's not possible because he's already been compared to Cain. He's already been compared to Judas Iscariot. No, it is possible. It is possible, and he's getting worse. He's going down, it says, from his brothers. So he's leaving the family of God, the household in which salvation resides alone. He leaves, and he visited, or he stayed with a certain Adolamite, a certain Canaanite. He's forsaking his family in favor of the Canaanites, is the idea, and they are a forbidden people. came about at that time that Judah went down from his brothers, and visited a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira, and this guy is like his very best friend. And to visit or to stay with, to share the table in the ancient Near East, is to identify with intimately. It's to say, I'm one with this person. I receive him, he receives me. And then it gets even worse, for Moses then said, and Judah, and track the verbs, okay? Judah saw Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite. So then what is she? Well, she is the fruit of the forbidden people. She's the forbidden fruit. He saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite. Her father's name, the Canaanite's name, was Shua, and he took Do you hear that? Because that ought to sound familiar, because now, for the second time in the story, Moses is going back earlier into the book of Genesis, and he's again borrowing language from another story, which he is here applying again now to Judah and to what he does here. If you go back to Genesis 3, verse 6, to the story of the fall of man, it says, when the woman, uh uh-oh, saw saw what? That the tree, what tree? The forbidden tree, the one that God said, don't eat the fruit of this one. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, kind of like this Canaanite woman, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she did what? She took from its forbidden fruit and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate, plunging all of humanity into a state of sin, misery, and death. And so now, 35 chapters later, when he's sitting around going, how can I describe what Judah did? Oh, I know. He borrows from there. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, the fruit of the forbidden people, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he describes their relationship, and it's purely sexual. And sexual temptation and sensuality and all that really then becomes the theme for the rest of chapter 38, but not just 38, also 39. And so we see Joseph, and or Jacob, or Judah, I'll get it eventually, and how he deals with it, and then we see Joseph and how he deals with it, even when nothing inside the edges of his puzzle piece life makes any sense. So Moses takes this idea of sexual temptation, and he uses it to demonstrate the difference. It becomes his teaching tool. And so Jacob, or or Judah rather, takes this woman, and he has not one, not two, but three Sons with her, the first of which, just like his dad, marries another Canaanite woman. Her name is Tamar. You might have heard of her. She's really famous. Keep your eye on her. But his first son, who marries Tamar, is such a wicked guy that something unprecedented in the Bible up until this moment happens, and that is that God, it says, killed Judah's oldest son. So that's interesting. And that leaves this woman, Tamar, who had been married to his oldest son and was therefore legally entitled to carry on the seed as the oldest son was the primary heir of the father, to carry on the seed of the line of Judah. It leaves her as a widow. She has no children at that point. And so now Judah is kind of in a tight spot because what he is now obligated to do is to take his second son and to marry son number two off to this woman Tamar, which is what he does. However, son number two is no better than son number one. Not a great family. And son number two realizes that if he impregnates this woman Tamar, and she has a son, then what's going to happen is that child that he enables her to have by impregnating her will receive the inheritance that his dead older brother was supposed to get. And that's the lion's share of the inheritance So, son number two figures out pretty quickly that if he impregnates this woman, she has a boy. It's to his severe financial disadvantage. And so he's willing to use her for sex, but he's not willing to impregnate her. I'll leave the details to the Scriptures, which are far less modest than we would, you know, like at times. You can read about it at home. But the point is, he's no better than his brother, so God kills him too. So now the unprecedented event has happened twice in Judah's family not saying a lot about dad. And it really puts him in a jam because he only has one son left. And he's so spiritually insensitive, he doesn't realize that his son's own wickedness have brought upon them their own death. He thinks it's this woman. It's like he's superstitious. And so he lies to her and says, look, here's the thing. I realize that I am now obligated to give my son to you. I realize that you are entitled to carry on my line, and I'm planned to do it. Lie, lie, wink, wink. But he's really young, so here's the deal. I'm going to send you home. You go live with your Canaanite dad. I'm going to keep son number three with me. I'm never going to get, I mean, I'll give him to you um, after he grows up. So she goes home and waits for years, maybe close to two decades. And nothing inside the little puzzle piece of her life is lining up at this point. But she's faithful to the mission, to the task, to the idea, to the calling to carry on the line of Judah. And he's not. And eventually, she kind of figures out, because the boy grows up, Judah is not going to give his third boy to me. And so in Genesis 38, verse 12, we read, it says, Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, the Canaanite woman that he had married and had all these children with, died. And then when the time of mourning was ended, so he has mourned her, he's done with that, he's moving on with life, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite, his lifelong best friend, Canaanite buddy. And it was told to Tamar, who again had figured out at this point, okay, he's not going to give me what I'm legally entitled to, And who herself had remained faithful to this mission, it was told to Tamar Behold, your father in law, whose character she knows perfectly. Your father in law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she removed her widow's garments. Do you hear that? She's been a widow for close to two decades. She's still mourning the loss, if you will, of her first husband. She's faithful to the whole deal. He, on the other hand, had just recently lost his wife. He's already moving on. It's subtle, but Moses is saying things about his heart, about this guy. She removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, a shawl, and wrapped herself. What that means is she dressed herself like a prostitute because she knows her father-in-law. She knows that he is a victim to sex and sexuality. She knows that he is subject to his passions, and he cannot resist. And then she sat at the gateway of Enaim, which is very strategic because it's on the road to Timnah, which she knows is where he's going. For she saw that Shelah, that third son, had grown up and that she had not been given to him as a wife. And then Moses says, when Judah, what, saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside, according to her plan, to her by the road, to take her is the idea. And then he made some small talk about the weather and, no, he doesn't do that at all. In the Scriptures, which again are far less modest than some of us are comfortable with at times, he gets right to the point. He turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. Really? Do you want to know my name? Do you want to talk? About... No, that's it. That's pretty much it. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, and she said, What will you give me that you may come into to me? So she's going to broker the deal now. And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Surely that'll be enough. And she's like, Yeah, well, that's cool, but I don't see a goat with you, so give me a pledge. And the pledge is really what she's after. She's thought this through. Will you give me a pledge until you send the goat? And he says, well, what pledge shall I give you? So it's really going perfectly according to her plan. I mean, he just says, yeah, what do you want? Whatever it is, I'll do it because, you know, I'm on fire, man. And she says, I want something that is unmistakably yours. I want something that is unique in all the earth and is directly tied to you. I want something like the coat of your brother that nobody will ever mistake for belonging to anyone other than you. That's what she asks for. She said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand, okay? The seal was like a cylinder that he wore on a cord around his neck, and he used it as his signature. So on a legal document, for example, that is sealed with soft clay or wax, it would be rolled upon it. No one in the world, it's like your fingerprint had a seal like this. No one. It's his seal, his cord. And oh, by the way, his staff. The staff of a wealthy man. It's not some stick that he picked up as he's walking through the woods. This is a carefully crafted piece of art with his name on it, among other things. She asks for a pretty big pledge. And overcome with his passions, he gives them to her. Here. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. She got what she was entitled to, but she had to go through all these machinations and deceptions to get it. And then later, he tries to send her the goat so he can get his, you know, stuff back. And, uh, and they couldn't find this harlot, this prostitute, quote-unquote, anywhere. And people are like, oh, there's been no prostitute around here. We don't know what you're talking about. So to avoid any further embarrassment, he calls off the search and yet a few months down the road, he gets wind of the fact that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who's betrothed to his third son, that he never intended to give to her in the first place, is now pregnant, and he sees this as an opportunity to get rid of her, to relieve himself of the, of the obligation to marry off his youngest son to this woman. And so he's indignant, and under the law... He demands that she be burned to death. How do you like this guy? Something, isn't it? Verse 25, it says, It was while she was being brought out to be burned to death that she sent to her father-in-law saying, Oh, and this had to be... I mean, you know, there's some kind of enjoyment in this, I have to believe. She says, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And then look what she says in the providence of God, because it ought to be familiar language to you. It was very, very familiar to Judah. In the providence of God, she says, please examine and see. And I think that that phrase, together with the presentation of these items that are uniquely His took him all the way back to the tent of his father when he presented that coat dipped in blood that was uniquely Joseph's and used the exact same words. It unmasks him. And he's undone. Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. It's undeniable. has his name on it. And Judah recognized them. And Judah repented. It's kind of interesting. Judah repented and said, she is more righteous than I. Actually, what it says literally in the Hebrew is, she is righteous, not I. He's saying something about his heart. She is righteous, not I, inasmuch as as I did not give to her. My son Shelah and Judah did not have relations with her again. He took her into his household. She bore not one but two sons. They're twins. And he lived honorably with her. And I don't want to give away the climax of the entire Joseph story. We're going to get to it a week or two down the road. But I will tell you that it involves this guy, Judah. God forgives this man. God saves this man. (laughs) God radically changes this man. God takes this guy and he transforms him from the villain in the story to the hero in the story. The single most significant moment in the entire Joseph story deals with this guy. It's huge, and that should be a great encouragement to all of us because thus far this guy's been compared to Cain, Judas Iscariot, Adam, who plunged all of humanity into a state of sin and misery and death, and yet this guy becomes the leader and the prince of the family of God. This guy becomes the father of the tribe of Judah through whom Jesus will one day, many generations later, be born. And Tamar, the Canaanite quote-unquote prostitute, is the mother. God works outside the edges of our lives. And you know what? He works inside the edges of our lives, too, in ways that we ought to see but don't, usually. But He's ever at work to bring all things together for good and for His glory, both for Him and for us. And when you plug Judah's little puzzle piece into the big picture, and you're able to do that, the Scripture lets you do these things. It's showing you parts of the big picture, you see, and the lives of these characters and how they fit, and calling you to believe that your life is likewise. When you plug his little picture in, his little puzzle piece, what you see is that God's grace is big enough to save anyone, for it saves him. But meanwhile, Joseph, whom you're meant to compare this Judah, too, is a slave in Egypt. And again, he's working now as a slave for Potiphar, wealthy Egyptian official. And it says, Moses tells us that the Lord was with Joseph in the house of Potiphar. And it says also that the Lord made Joseph very successful, which I think is kind of an interesting phrase. I think you've got to stop at a phrase like that and go, huh, now what does that mean for me? Because I think that our tendency is that when we become very successful in whatever it is, be it monetary or whatever, we tend to take credit for it ourselves, don't we? And we forget all about this God who governs and ordains and orders and decrees and, and, and directs absolutely everything, including the production of success in this world. We look at our lives and go, well, you know, I mean, I work hard and that's why. Really, there are a lot of poor people that work hard. Well, you know, I'm very well educated and I'm intelligent. Yeah, well, there are a lot of out-of-work paupers that are PhDs. The Lord who ordains and directs, he ordains and directs whatever success we have. And in Joseph's case, it was a lot in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar figures it out. I mean, he sees that, man, everything this kid touches turns to gold. So he very wisely, he's no dolt, takes this young man, 17 years old, and says, you are now in charge of my household. You see the pattern in his life? Though he's young, he's the head of the household of his father. Though he's young, he becomes the head of the household of this Egyptian. He's always coming from the bottom and rising to second in command. And everything is placed under his authority in his father's household, in Potiphar's household, and next week, you'll see it again. He's a picture of Christ. He comes out of the pit to prominence. So anyway, Potiphar goes, all right, everything under your control. And then everything while Joseph was in control went really, really well. And for a season here, everything inside of Joseph's little puzzle piece, I mean, at least for a slave, was going about as good as it possibly could. Life was good again until Mrs. Potiphar began to take a liking to 17-year-old Joseph. And Joseph then found himself in a no-win situation. And I say no-win because here's the thing. If he has an affair with her, which is what she wants, eventually she'll tire of him. And if he doesn't, well, eventually she'll hate and want to get rid of him, and that's what happens. So she comes on to him day after day, and in chapter 38, or 39 rather, verse 8... It says, but Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, and he gives her an explanation, look, give me a break, he's saying. Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. That's not unreasonable. And then he says, then how could I do this great evil and sin against God? And sin against God. It's amazing. You would almost expect at this point that he would say and sin against my master Potiphar. I mean, he's entrusted this to me. No, he's still thinking about God and being obedient to God. And what's amazing about that is not that he's 17. It's not that she was undoubtedly beautiful as a wife of an Egyptian official. It's it's not that dad would never know and he could get away with it. And what's amazing is that he remains faithful and obedient to the Lord, even though If all you can see is what's inside of his little puzzle piece and that's all he could see, it looked like God had been unfaithful to him. But he hangs in there. He believes that somehow in ways that are beyond his imagination and vision, the Lord is working to make sense of it all, and he remains faithful to God. One of the unmistakable lessons of these stories as you compare the two is that you and I cannot allow what's going on inside the little corners and edges of the puzzle pieces of our lives to determine whether or not we're going to be obedient to the Lord. We just can't. I mean, we cannot look at what's going on in our life and go, well, you know what, hey God, if that's the way that you treat me, then here's what I'm going to do. Can't do it. Because we forget that we can look at a puzzle piece all day. And come up with all kinds of theories. Well, clearly, this is what... No, it's not what it is. How do you know? Until it plugs in. We're called to trust that when it plugs in, it makes a lot of sense. And that's what Joseph does. So he turns her down, and she won't be denied. If you know the story, she sets a trap. She sends everybody out of the house so she can be alone when he comes to make his rounds. She knows when he's coming. Dresses appropriately, I'm sure propositions him. He says, no, she actually is so aggressive that she grabs his coat. Do you hear that? Watch the clothes of Joseph. Every time he changes clothes, something significant happens in his life. She grabs his coat, and to get away from her, he just literally peels it off, his outer garment, leaves it in her hand, and runs. What a lesson for how to get away from temptation. A, it comes every single day, just like this woman did. It's unrelenting. And B, run he runs out of the house, and then just like Joseph's brothers had done with his tunic, she takes this tunic, this cloak, if you will, and she uses it as false evidence against him. And she claims that he attempted to rape her, because she's figured out he's, his answer is no. And she wants to get rid of him. And she says, look here, I've got his coat. It's undeniable, it's his. He'll even admit it's his. And you know where he finds himself? In Pharaoh's dungeon, the dungeon of the palace. And the word is a pit. He's back in the pit. And he's not there for a couple of days. He's there for years, years in the pit. And God doesn't show up to explain it all to him. Hey, man, I know this is a bummer. (laughs) So let me show you what I'm doing here. This is going to be cool because in the next chapter of your life... It's going to be a few years, but when you get there, it's. he just says, trust me. Joseph, here's who I am. Here's what I'm like. This is my love and care for you. I'm working, man. And when you see the final product, when you see how all of this comes together with all the other pieces of my puzzle, when it makes its place into my big picture you're going to be really happy and astonished at how beautiful it is. And that's what Joseph does. And that's what we're called to do. See, these stories call us to come to a God whose grace is big enough to save us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been. Good grief, it saved Judah and then to trust in that God who reveals himself most poignantly through Jesus, that that God is working in a way that in the end makes sense and brings beauty out of and to every aspect of your life. Okay? So next week we'll pick it up again. Father, we do thank you, um, Lord, for your grace, which is huge. And I pray, God, that You would impress upon us as we come to Your Word by Your Spirit just how gracious You really are, that we might see refractions of the beauty of Your grace as we study stories like this in Your Word, as we talk to other people who have come to faith in You and and explain their stories of grace. And I pray, God, that You would make of each one of us a trophy of Your grace that we, like this man Judah, might be made clean, might be forgiven and transformed through faith in the Son of Judah and in the Son of God, Jesus. And Lord, I pray also that You would encourage us in the midst of difficult times now, that You would strengthen us with stories like this which peel back the veil of heaven and give us some insight into how You work, into how You construct Your big picture not just in the lives of these characters, but in our lives as well. They couldn't see it, and yet they were faithful to You. And we can't see it either, at least not in our lives. And yet, Lord, I pray that You would make us faithful and strengthen us for obedience that we might glorify You. We pray all of these things for Your glory and for the building of Your kingdom in this world and for the furtherance of Your big, beautiful picture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.